Welcome back to Africa Investigates, a podcast that delves into some of the biggest cases of financial corruption across the continent. I'm your host, Chris Roper. This week, we focus on Nigeria's illicit system of double offshoring, a system which involves moving both oil and oil revenue through offshore entities to maximize profits. Nigeria is currently the largest economy in Africa, and in part, this is thanks to the oil and gas sector which makes up one-third of the country's GDP. But Nigeria's economic rise to power has been plagued by one scandal after the next. And with the release of the Panama Papers this April, Nigeria is once again in the hot seat. With the discovery of oil in 1956, there's been an influx of investment in the Niger Delta. To date, more than half of Nigeria's oil is drilled offshore or in deep water. In 2009, Agbami, which is one of the largest offshore oil fields, hit peak production at 250,000 barrels per day. Both the private partners, in this case Star Deep and Fund for Oil, and the public partner, the Nigerian National Petroleum Corporation, stood to make huge profits from their investments. And yet, how much each partner made or even produced remains a mystery. Any ITI, or the Nigeria Extractive Industries Transparency Initiative, which is meant to monitor resource companies and their earnings, documents only what companies claim to have paid, not what they actually should pay. According to the most recent NEITI report, Stardeep owes $66.5 million in royalties to the Nigerian government for its earnings at Agbami. In reality, almost no royalties have been remitted due to production sharing agreement contracts, or PSAs, that stipulate 0% royalties if oil is drilled in excess of 1,000 meters. This means Nigeria could generate $4 billion annually if a low rate of 4% were levied on extracted deep water oil. Offshore regimes are contracted through PSAs, which demand little from government and provide generous financial perks to companies who bear the cost and the danger of deep water exploration. To drill offshore, private companies must have ocean-based vessels that are often flagged or claim the nationality of maritime tax havens like Liberia, Panama, Belize, and the Marshall Islands. These jurisdictions sell their flags for a small fee and impose few, if any, regulatory policies. However, private companies aren't the only ones enjoying tax haven jurisdictions. Nor is the line between private companies, such as Fund for Oil, which is partially owned by the Nigerian government, and the Nigerian government itself all that clear. This is because the government often sells to briefcase or shell companies that are registered in tax havens and who then sell to private oil traders in Switzerland rather than sell its share of oil directly to end users. Today on our podcast, we explore the level of deception seemingly innate to the Nigerian oil sector. First, we will be joined by Khadija Sharif, who is the lead investigative reporter for the African Network for Centers on Investigative Reporting. And then later, we'll be joined by Frederick Lindenberg, who is one of three data specialists who compiled the data needed to visualize the system of double offshoring. Khadija, welcome. Um, for those who are not familiar with the term, could you kick off by defining double offshoring, particularly as it relates to the Nigerian case study? Um, so you think of Nigeria and oil and every caricatured stereotype in that one-dimensional story will be thrown up. Pipelines like needles on the body of an addict and, and the pollution kind of looks like track marks if you see it from a bird's eye view. But much of that story while true in its kernel, it's also just part of the bigger systemic picture because more than half of Nigeria's oil isn't produced from land. It's actually produced from the deep water, which is known as the offshore. And the financial landscape, which is also, of course, known as the offshore, 
is where all of that economic activity has been virtually displaced to these tax havens. So this ranges from the financial construct, you know, the subsidiaries of linked companies, financial flows, but also down to the most granular issues, which is where are the oil rigs incorporated, uh, why are they registered in those maritime tax havens, and what effect does this have on the country where the real oil activity takes place. So the double offshore was just basically speaking to the deep water where the oil, more than half of Nigeria's oil comes from, and then the financial offshore. Why was Nigeria selected as the site of this investigation? And how does it fare in comparison to other oil-rich African nations? So Nigeria as an economy is overwhelmingly shaped by oil since the discovery of it and independence shortly followed thereafter. Um, So oil is intertwined with the imaginary politics of the government, its budget, its political economy. Right now it's about 60% of the government's budget, um, more than 95% of its foreign exchange. But rather than using oil as a source of revenue to diversify um, and strengthen its economy, Nigeria cultivated dependence on oil as a single bullet, you know, a, a, a magic bullet, not independence through oil. So we noticed a shift from companies operating in the onshore to the offshore. Um, from 2004, when about 2.7% of oil was produced from the deep water, it's now just under 60%. So more than half of Nigeria's oil comes from this a territory that hasn't really been focused on. And the move from the onshore to the offshore is mainly because of Nigeria's fiscal regime uh, in the deep water, which is very stagnant. Um, the, the production sharing agreements were created at a time when oil was less than $20 per barrel, big oil fields um, in the ocean weren't discovered, and so on. So there's been very little focus, and that lack of focus has allowed for these very outdated uh, fiscal regimes to continue. Um, in terms of other mineral economies, South Africa, Angola, and Libya, Botswana, they're all kind of dependent and formed from minerals, and so they have more or less the same systemic issues like corruption, illicit revenue flows. The operational logic of all of it is the same, but of course they deal in different um, financial flows because of the amount of minerals and, and the systemic importance of those minerals to the uh, global financial architecture. That's terrible. Approximately how much money is lost each year to the system? It, it's very hard to know exactly how much is being lost. Um, so the politics of these governments, particularly in dominant one-party states, uh, which Nigeria is not, has co-opted politics through a deep state system where the public role is removed into the private sector it was intended to regulate. Um, so we know from global financial integrity figures constructed around trade misinvoicing that after South Africa, Nigeria is one of the top ten sources of illicit financial flows in the continent. They've lost about $17, $20 billion in the past decade through things um, in, in the context of oil like gold trading, which is um, these companies can reduce or deduct from pre-tax profits 100% of their costs. And a lot of these costs are artificial. But because there's no um, disaggregated figures available, you know, they publish aggregated figures related to the multinational and how it affects the, the capital investor, not the, the country, the citizens, the government. Because this disaggregated information isn't available, it's not possible to see where and how the money is being lost. But taking that $20 billion um, down to the level of reality, it's, it's the woman who doesn't have $5 to buy medicine for her kid who might die of diarrhea. It's that $4 for about 20 liters of water when the power supply shuts down that people don't have. Uh, broadly, it's the national health insurance, for example, which covers only about 4% of the population, and this is mainly employees of the government. So there's all this wealth, and 
you know, people are excluded from the right to live because they don't have access to any of it, whether it's $10 or $10 billion. And I was told, uh, funnily enough, about a year ago, I was sitting in a cab with the head of a Nigerian bank, and he told me that in Nigeria there are big animals and little animals, and everyone knows their place in the jungle. So when big figures are thrown around and isn't made understandable to real life, people think it's just big animal talk, and it just kind of goes over their heads. Are the Nigerian people aware of the amount of money they're deprived of each year? And what should that revenue be going toward? Roads, bridges, healthcare? You know, the, the incentive is tremendous. Governments need credibilities with and from citizens. But in these countries, Angola, South Africa, you know, Nigeria, they are dependent or derive the bulk of their income from minerals. So they don't need to generate this income from citizens, which means they're not dependent on citizens for budget, but on companies for the budget. So governments really right now don't have to be responsive to their citizens because that's not where the fiscal social contract is based. From a political economy standpoint, you know, these corporations co-op, they buy governments creating that deep state system. The laws are ambiguous and vague. It undermines competitiveness and the clarity of markets, even the viability of industries. Um, from a democratic standpoint, if states aren't accountable to citizens and these offshore structures define industries and displace entire industries, then essentially the country as a whole, you know, the, the, the systemic structure of a country just doesn't exist. It's virtual and we don't know where or how it's based. So the incentive is huge, but has anything happened? We like to think something has happened. You know, the U.S. said they're now going to disclose beneficial owners, but they changed the definition of what a beneficial owner is. Um, from the person who runs the company to the person who is actually benefiting from the company, but who may not necessarily be the nominee head. In South Africa, they said they're going to disclose beneficial owners. Uh, the Sierra Leone government opened up an investigation, but will anything tangible come from it? We like to think it will, but we have to think seriously about whether the Panama Papers is going to be a trend that focuses for a moment on this and then moves on, or whether people and media and journalists are going to dig deep and continue pushing the content and the principles behind these kinds of exposés. And I, I hope they do, and I like to think that it will happen. Well, that's a very vivid picture. Has the release of new information through the Panama Papers uh, altered the offshoring habits of either the government or corporations in the country? What's the incentive for either the Nigerian government or the private partners to begin to play by the rules? Now that's that's a very good question. So China was stockpiling oil, which dramatically pushed up the price. And now that they're not doing that any longer, it's um, recovered its, its normal balance, so it's dropped. But does the oil price really affect Nigeria's uh, national budget? Just speaking to the offshore, for example, when oil prices were at about $100 per barrel or more, and factoring in the oil from major fields like Agbami and Bonga, which were producing something around 240 million barrels each year, Nigeria received basically nothing from the offshore, even when the price of oil was high because of the 0% royalty rate in these outdated production sharing uh, contracts. Because they say that there's a 0% rate if the oil is extracted in excess of 1,000 meters. So for every percentage they lost of royalties, it was effectively a billion dollars uh, at that time. If Nigeria had a 4% royalty rate in the PSCs for deep water, they would have generated $4 billion. If it was a normal 10% rate, they would have generated $10 billion every year from royalties. But right now, it performs at zero. So the price of oil is critical, but 
how the law is constructed and, and the character of these agreements is even more important than the price of oil. Because corruption, you know, we like to think of it as money being stolen or public officials being turned, but it's also a process of coercion to ensure that laws remain contradictory and weak and manipulable. So these reopener clauses for the PSCs in these big fields weren't triggered when the contracts were amended. So in this way, corruption can also be legislated in ways that, you know, we haven't yet factored into the definition or that one-dimensional story of corruption. With oil prices now at an all-time low, how might this multi-billion dollar scheme be interrupted? Uh, that, that's a good question. Um, like any other mineral, oil as a commodity operates within the same financial architecture. So it has its own very specific landscape, but then it's put into the same system where companies um, don't have to disclose the, the substance of trade between their subsidiaries. Uh, so effectively, some of these companies have, let's say, economies that are bigger than many of the tax havens that we use. Um, we know the Panama Papers disrupted many myths, you know, that these offshore islands, which are very poor and vulnerable and, and caught between coconuts and criminality, and previously the central focus points, we know now that the onshore, the powerful political hubs like the UK dominated through their overseas territories, the Caymans, the Channel Islands, the British Virgin Islands, and we know that the money was never stuck on offshore, but kind of circulated back into the onshore through credible banks like HSBC and UBS. And we know that these banks and other intermediaries also work together. They were the biggest clients of companies like Mossack Fonseca because the lowest standard of due diligence ensured that each part, each cog, would only have a certain amount of information that then guaranteed deniability. So while oil is central to the world's economy, because it is incorporated and performs within this global financial architecture that does not require mandatory information exchange, corporate country-by-country country reporting, capital exchange controls, it kind of became part of that same corrupt system. And the world is corrupt in almost precisely the same way. It's just that with Africa, we see it more because there's so much less in the cupboard. So we hope that there's going to be change. And we know that the solutions are very, very easy. It's information that companies already have that governments know they should be getting. But it hasn't been implemented because, again, the onshore political powers, the U.S., the U.K., Switzerland, the OECD, for God's sake, is the host of the world's biggest and most, you know, the, the largest tax havens. And these are the countries that Transparency International calls the cleanest in the world. So what we have is a political problem that is being framed in technocratic ways. And we have to move past that narrative and those definitions to change. And I think that change can come because if Panama proved anything, it was that the use of this is very normal. It's not exceptional. And it pointed out where the problem lies. And now we know what needs to be done. And finally, Khadija, could you tell us how the story might impact other oil-rich nations with comparable levels of corruption? How might this affect the political and the private actors? And how might it affect the local people? Yeah. So, for example, South Africa, just as a South African, um, I'll say that, you know, our country loses 23% of our GDP every single year to illicit financial flows. And this is money that should be invested in the government budget for things like free university education, free health insurance. I mean, these are the rights of citizens. But because the Constitution is paper thin, you know, it says you have the right to water, but how much of water, you know? Or you have the right to electricity, but again, how much of electricity does that right constitute? If the government of South Africa or Nigeria or Angola was serious about change, 
they would implement a very few basic things that we all know for 10 years now the tax, tax justice network has been saying mandatory information exchange corporate country by country reporting and what this does is it creates a natural sanction it forces granular or disaggregated information into the public domain and once you see that a hundred million dollars is being sent for management fees to Mauritius it's obvious what that is and it's obvious that the government then has no choice but to crack down on it the problem with governments like South Africa and Angola is you have these dominant one-party states that perform like multinationals where donations to these political parties are unknown. So private companies are able to purchase policy, and these political parties perform as long-term business partners as well as sovereign state actors. So we need to make sure that these things, who donates to a political party, disclosing that, capping that, simple things can radically change the world, not just South Africa, but countries like the United States and the UK that are also losing a lot of money to exactly the same techniques. But because their political systems operate in much the same way through lobbying and buying people in government, you see the same effect. So I think we need to move past the idea of Nigeria or Africa as endemic with an incapacity to govern itself and move to solutions that need to be globally implemented and which can save the world that 35 trillion that's right now allegedly stuck offshore, but which we know has already circulated back onshore through the same fucking bank. In order to build the double offshoring site, you use data from freely accessible commercial sites. In this case, oil rig databases like FPSO and RigZone. And then you scrape the data to show an illicit network of entities in the oil and the gas industry. One assumes that this is not what RigZone ever expected you to do with that information. Can you talk perhaps a bit about the role data specialists such as yourself now play in holding companies accountable for their best and often worst practices? So I think in a way this kind of connects back to the Panama Papers discussion and these promises that are being made right now about creating beneficial ownership registries. I believe that the odds of these actually coming around are very slim so that we'll have perfect information on who owns what company globally. That's very unlikely over the next couple of years. But at the same time, there is so much information already available. There's industry websites like RigZone that you mentioned. There are other kind of government websites, regulatory websites, that keep a lot of information on what companies own, what, what assets, but also on who in turn owns these companies, what their chains of ownership are. And I think that um, data experts like myself um, can kind of play a role in trying to piece these together and trying to kind of get the data that is already out there right now, try to kind of bring it into a more coherent form and then prepare it for analysis by journalists so that they can then kind of more easily piece together the, people, the, the different steps on that ownership chain that leads from a company based somewhere in the U.S. down to a oil rig somewhere off the coast of Nigeria. And I guess that's the question that would interest a lot of people who are not embedded in this field. How on earth do you take these masses of data and turn them into something useful and understandable? That's a really difficult thing. I think often and there's two levels of useful and understandable, right? I mean, one level is how can we create something that's actually a resource for investigative journalists to kind of be able to conduct their own investigations and to kind of find leads in, in larger, kind of more quantitative amounts of data. Um, on the other hand, obviously, there's the question of how do you then communicate those things to the readers once you've actually found um, things that form a story. And I think um, while for journalists it's perfectly okay to just take all the different companies that are, for example, doing a business in, in the oil industry in Nigeria and just kind of making an overview of who the big players are, where they're based, etc. 
um, for a more kind of more general audience, then it becomes important to say, okay, here's like one example or a few examples out of out of the, the larger set of companies, and we're showing kind of how how the system of these companies kind of having operations in Nigeria or off the coast of Nigeria, um, and at the same time kind of using using tax havens offshore. But we're trying to show these connections as a system through these few examples. So we we actually didn't have that many. Um, Specific rigs and companies in the data visualization that we are, we've created, um, but still, it's already a fairly, fairly dense kind of piece of information to look at. Can you talk a bit about uh, the work relationship between the data specialist, the person who grabs the core data, and the investigative journalist who then complements it with manual research to generate an in-depth story? One of the great aspects of the story is that the data seems to support the piece that Khadija Sharif wrote on the subject. How does the relationship work? Can you describe the mechanics? It's fascinating because I get to learn a lot about the domains that experts like Khadija are familiar with in terms of how the international kind of offshore financial and business system works. Um, what we can contribute, I think, is exactly those skills in terms of kind of taking a website that may have many, many diverse and kind of distributed pieces of information available, um, has them kind of spread throughout the website, and then try and kind of build little uh, programs that basically go through all the different um, uh, kind of corners of that website, put together all that information into a new report that allows uh, for a form of analysis that otherwise would have taken um, absurd amounts of time. And I think that uh, what, what's really important here is that there's kind of a constant kind of going back and forth between um, the technologists kind of trying to kind of find new sources and trying to kind of see what information is available in these sources specifically, and then the journalist kind of giving feedback on whether that actually kind of contributes to the investigation and what kind of the missing links are right now. So what are the connections that we can't quite make yet, and where might we find the data that, that would allow, allow us to do this? So for example, with the Double Offshore, we had um, a lot of kind of industry websites that were showing us um, information about the, the oil rigs. But we're missing quite a lot of ownership information. So at some point, we actually kind of considered buying information from, from commercial data providers in terms of getting a more detailed and more comprehensive picture of who the, um, who the owners are and who the operators are. I guess the stumbling point for a lot of these data stories is that the narratives aren't appealing to a mass market, to many readers. Do you have any examples, and I think perhaps your work on extractives in Mozambique might be one, of doing a story where there isn't a journalistic partner that you're working with? Well, I mean, the, the problem is that this data is really kind of complex, right? And often I think that the, um, the uh, business deals that underlie this and that are kind of um, th that are shadowed in this data um, are, are really, really complex. And so I feel that many journalists actually don't feel comfortable kind of digging into this unless they've, they've got a, a significant kind of prior knowledge on it. Um, I would also say that um, it's really important still to have that because, I mean, we need to break it down into, into these human stories. We need to kind of connect um, the, the aspect that, um, um, of, of, of how exactly a company is owned and where the um, kind of direct directors are based and where um, all the intermediate chains are and what kind of tax constructs are being used. We need to connect that back exactly as Khadija said to the wealth that is kind of um, lost for countries. I think that, uh, for example, in Mozambique, we're kind of doing a project very similar to this and we had a lot more data. 
Um, so we had actually the entire company registry for the country as well as um, a full set of um, all the oil and gas concessions in the country as well as a list of all the kind of political player, major political players in the country. Um, but still we, we were kind of missing in our team someone who was then going back and kind of connecting this to the more day-to-day -day kind of political life and political reality in Mozambique. And I think this is really one of the crucial aspects because if you don't do that, then in the end you, all you've got is, um, I don't know, you've become another regulatory agency whose output nobody really understands. I guess the question becomes, how do you make this material attractive to a drive-by reader? What is, what's your opinion, Frederick, on, on data form, on, on visualizations, on what works, what doesn't work? It's really difficult, I think. I think like, one, one thing that is, is um, as, as soon as you talk, start talking about corporate ownerships, um, you, you really quickly get into this metaphor of using networks for everything. So, um, and this is also, I, I think, in, in some ways, the way that journalists like to think about um, think about this. Um, this material is that it's all kind of a big network and everything is connected somehow. But that actually turns out to be kind of a fairly mediocre way of, of actually presenting the information because on the one hand, what you're really missing is all the financial flows that go through these networks, which is often where the actual kind of um, crime or at least the, the kind of weirdness of, of what's happening comes in. And on the other hand, it's often kind of very bad in directing people's attention. So this is something that um, I think we've been exploring for a while in Code for Africa. How do, you, how do you kind of get to a point where you can kind of present those complex corporate network stories and, um, I don't know, globalized business deals? How do you present them in a way that actually guides a, a reader or a visitor through that and kind of tells the story rather than just showing complexity for complexity's sake? And I think that, um, to be honest, nobody's really quite cracked that nut. Looking through the, um, through the Panama Papers kind of publications that came out, there were a few good pieces. But then again, there were also a lot of things where, I don't know, stuff was, was made pretty and was made to look complex, mainly because people wanted it to look complex because that was kind of a matter of pride that um, such a complex thing had been investigated. And what's your opinion on presenting a lot of data in a visualization versus presenting the minimum and allowing the user to use their own work to make their own effort to unpack the data. Do you think there's a different impact that the story and the message has? Um, yes. I'm, I'm, I'm not very proud of the work that I've done on this in the past because I, I often kind of consider the journalists to be more of my kind of target audience than the readers. Um, and so I, I do feel a need to cram a lot of stuff in there just so that the next stage of the process, which is where a journalist then picks up my data and investigates it, that that stage can kind of have a full depth. I think on, 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 on kind of showing stuff to readers, it's much more important to then go out and really reduce it down to just a few items to kind of, um, rather than showing a full thing, rather than showing a full data set of, of corporate um, relationships, I think it's often better to just show a few examples and present how the system works rather than um, what, the, what the map of the, of the globalized territory kind of looks like. Finally, what impact could the data you gathered and coded have, or perhaps has had, on the double offshore industry at large? Well, has it had an impact? I, I honestly don't think so, to be honest. I think this is a massive thing that lives in a, in a realm where it's, it's, it's not violating the laws, per se. And... Um, I'm, I'm very cynical about this. I think that, in a way, um, these are all exercises we need to make in terms of uh, allowing us as journalists or as activists or as people who are trying to understand these, these systems to kind of understand ourselves how, 
um, what, what these mechanisms look like. So I think that in, in many ways it's important that we kind of study this and we, that we understand it and that we kind of break it down into, into some kind of simplified narratives for ourselves for the moment, um, just so that we can, we, can, we can then start kind of influencing more public discussion. And I think that um, it's, it's unfortunately the case that in order to kind of bring this to a wider audience, you need to kind of connect it to um, famous people, politicians, um, all these things that were possible for the Panama Papers, but that in the world of oil drilling, I think, are kind of uh, few and far between. And so I think it, it, it's really hard to kind of um, take these things and get a popular audience with them. Um, yeah, so I'm, I'm a bit of a cynic on that point, to be honest. Khadija, thanks Frederick for joining us today and shedding light on Nigeria's complex system of double offshoring. This ANSIA podcast was funded by Open Society West Africa and co-produced by the World Policy Institute. Tune in next month for the second installment in our Panama Papers special.